Take a network break. Grab a virtual donut to prepare yourself for our weekly tumble through the week's tech news. We've got some FUs talking about Blue Cat again. Switch sales, got some coverage from Cisco Live, and then we wrap up with some finance and some quantum space networking. Before we get to the good stuff, let's pay the bills. We're sponsored today by iTential. iTential simplifies automation across the hybrid cloud network infrastructure. Their platform makes it easy for network teams to bring their own automation assets and scale their network automation efforts. So you can spend more time working on the things you like instead of repetitive, tedious tasks. Or in my case, I spend more time doing anything but work, going home, going to the pub, you know, things. Much more valuable use of my time. You can find out more at itential.com slash packet pushes. Stay tuned after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes with Palo Alto Networks, talking about how SD-WAN delivers flexible connections and application performance for your branch and remote locations. We're sort of going back to the basics here of what SD-WAN is. And somehow over the last couple of years, we've sort of forgotten what the basics of network connectivity is in an SD-WAN context. And it was a refreshing sort of retake to remind myself that sometimes that's just where the industry is. And of course, if you like this show, The Network Break, check out our other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Heavy Strategy. There's lots of analysis, there's lots of good conversations, and a lot of honesty where people try not to fill you up with fluff or too much marketing nonsense and help you with your professional development. You can find them all at packetpushes.net. Let's kick straight into some FU. Uh, related to InfiniBand and some commentary that I gave out last week, please have a look at the 2022 data on InfiniBand usage in the top 200 systems. It does not match with Greg's comments on InfiniBand, and it's the future from my point of view. So I took a look at what he was saying about the top interconnect trends amongst the high-performance compute, and I spoke to some people I know in the high-performance compute industry. And uh, what is true is that InfiniBand is the dominant platform, largely because most of the high-performance compute uh, applications use uh, MPI today, and there's not too much of the other stuff that's going on. And when I look around at where the future is, it's very clear amongst the HPC community that they want to move to Ethernet. They want to get away from InfiniBand because it doesn't scale. And it also caps out at 200 gig today. Although 400 gig is coming, it's still quite a bit behind where Ethernet is going to be. And the thing that we've learned over the years is that never bet against Ethernet. So I suspect you'll find that yes, today's systems are InfiniBand because the HPC industry is very slow to change, very... Uh, unwilling to change would be the word that I would describe it as. And I think Ethernet will eventually win, and it probably already will. AI networking will probably kick it off. Yeah, and Greg, there's even a couple of more points I can make on that. Oh, hi, everyone. It's Ethan substituting yeah. for Drew this week. Woohoo! We didn't mention Drew's on vacation, and so Ethan's here. But to go back to your InfiniBand point, um, where <laughs> we also have uh, interest in an Ethernet because who's the predominant InfiniBand supplier? It's uh, Mellanox, which is owned by NVIDIA, and there are a number of shops that are doing big AI production that are competitors of NVIDIA. If they could do business with someone else, hey, with an Ethernet shop, that would free them up that's also interesting to them uh, as well plus InfiniBand expertise hard to come by if you want to hire those people they don't exist and so getting away mm -hmm. from InfiniBand and moving to Ethernet is um, there, there's lots of mm -hmm. good reasons to be motivated to go in that direction yeah I think the the way to look at this is to look at NVIDIA and they've led out with the first two years of their AI clusters using InfiniBand and they've come out just over the last month or so, very, very strongly saying the future of AI is on AI networking is on Ethernet, and they're going to use Spectrum X and their Bluefield DPUs to drive that forward. That's as clear a signal as you can have saying that InfiniBand is not the way forward. It is definitely going to be Ethernet. And it's not because InfiniBand's broken or it's not a fiber channel. You know, there will be InfiniBand for the foreseeable future in the same way that fiber channel still exists for storage and so forth for those people who want it. But... InfiniBand caps out at 200 gig. Uh, Ethernet starts at 400 gig today, going up to 800 gig, and they're already talking about 1.6 terabit Ethernet for AI clusters because you have to have that capacity. If you listen to the show two weeks ago, I started to uh, talk about how AI networking um, changes the way that we work. It has to be persist uh, consistent jitter, zero loss, zero lowest possible latency that you can get because you're scheduling jobs to run across massively parallel GPUs on distributed amongst all of the servers. And if a job runs, if one GPU finishes before the other, it actually has to sit there and wait yeah. until the other GPUs then all report back and sync up. So you don't want that. There's another follow-up, Greg, uh, about Intel graphics card. 
Yeah, this is going on about GPUs again. I made a comment that the Intel GPUs aren't super competitive. And somebody's popped up uh, saying more for information than a correction, but the latest Intel graphics card, the A770, is actually reasonably competitive GPU. I just wanted to say that's very faint praise. Very reasonably competitive is like, okay. Now, he continues, early reports were not great, but that was largely a driver problem, and they've continued to iterate on the drivers. Graphics drivers are complicated and take time to optimize for various games. If you look at reviews or news, pay attention to the date. Yeah, it was a crapshoot at the beginning, but they've continued to work to make it better. I would say that if you have to qualify that statement in any way, like reasonably competitive and, oh, it was a driver problem, you might want to say that that vendor hasn't been very serious about GPUs. And I think Intel made a decision some years ago that it was better financially. There was better profit-seeking for them to leave their GPUs sort of in the mid-market and just produce them at a you know trail behind and let AMD and NVIDIA do that and it'd be fine. And now they've been caught out. The market has pivoted and Intel can probably catch up with GPUs eventually because they have to, to be competitive in the AI marketplace. Like already we're seeing uh, AI networking using ARM CPUs in the DPU and using not Intel's chipsets for the DPUs. Uh, we're also seeing uh, AMD processors being very widely used in AI processing for the CPUs. And of course, NVIDIA just recently has amped up their entire ARM range with the Grace Hopper and various of its new server ARM. And they're all ARM-based, not Intel-based. So I would say that Intel's got a real big struggle across here to get through to the people that matter. And they're not listening to Intel because uh, Intel doesn't have very good CPUs, doesn't have very good DPUs, and doesn't have got very good GPUs right at this point in time. And I think it will take quite a number of years for them to turn that around. First news story of the week, we've got Blue Cat acquiring Indeni, and they had uh, recently bought Mice and Men also. So Blue Cat is in an acquisition phase. Sounds to me like they've got some vision and growth for where they want to take their DDI platform. That is DNS, DHCP, and uh, IPAM, uh, all of those services wrapped into the Blue Cat platform. And we, we know Blue Cat. They've been a sponsor on the show historically. Uh, they're all about DDI. That's automation and programmability friendly is uh, the way I would describe it. The financials of the acquisition for Indeni were not disclosed, a private deal. Uh, and so what is Indeni all about? Well, the big use cases, if you go to Indeni.com, uh, they're all about uh, health checks, best practice validation, is your HA ready, config drift checking, proactive maintenance notification, that is poking around at your infrastructure and making sure that it is ready to rock and roll and helping notify you for those things that you might not be looking for, like, like HA ready, let's use that as an example. It's pretty common that you can have a high availability pair and some member uh, of that high availability pair is not actually ready to go. And so if you had a failover event, it would not fail over. In fact, it would just fail. <laughs> and so Indeni would alert you to that, go, hey, you got a cluster member here that's uh, that's not working right. Um, so Andrew Wordkin, chief strategy officer at Blue Cat, was quoted in the press release. And uh, we know Andrew a little bit. He's been on the show before. So I sent him a quick email to see if he had any comments about what Indeni would bring to the Blue Cat world. And uh, he sent he sent a bunch of comments uh, in in transit, in between traveling, he actually took a few minutes to write us some comments. So, Andrew, we appreciate that. Um, but he said, uh, apply in Denny these big ideas to uh, to DDI. Uh, and so, so to quote what Andrew's saying here, uh, codify our deep domain expertise, uh, specifically to Blue Cat products, but also on the service itself, DNS, DHCP. We believe that the ecosystem of vendors think too much about the health of any one node versus the health of the service. And when customers have issues with DNS and DHCP, it's often not related to any one node, but to something between the client and the service or node to node that is the root cause. And, and he goes on, there's several more comments here that he makes, but the point is from an engineering perspective, you're gonna get more into the root cause of what's actually broken with your DDI services mm -hmm. by leveraging the technology that's in the Indeni platform that they have acquired here. So uh, it's something you can look forward to as it sounds like they're gonna be integrating Indeni into BlueCat yeah. uh, going forward. I think BlueCat must have tapped into a source of funding somewhere that I haven't been able to track down. So they must have found an investor and been willing to grow. They bought Mice and Men a couple of weeks ago for another DDI provider, a very long-term one that's been around for 15 years and installed at large sites. I have the impression that BlueCat's been a mid-market sort of a player rather than an up-market player. And so that would be a nice compliment, be able to you know meld these two products together and reach a market. 
and then strapping on some an automation engine. So this is and Denny is fundamentally a a cross between an automation engine and a security engine by taking looking at configs and reading them. It's not a configuration engine, right? It's not a rectification. So it's fairly behind the curve. Like if I look at Indeni and compare it to say other tools which are using AI and saying I can detect and configure or I can detect and notify and suggest actions that you should then be taking. It doesn't appear to be that advanced. So I would say Indeni ran out of runway at a guess, found itself falling behind, but there's a market starting to rationalize. So we'll talk about Cisco Live in a minute with what Juniper's doing to, to put automation on top of all their products. Um, we're seeing DNS become part of other people's SDN plays. Like it's not a, it's not a separate product anymore. Increasingly, it's just part of, you know, if you're in the cloud, you get to use the DNS that's part of the cloud services. So I think these companies have to do something different. You know, especially Bluecat to change their product portfolio to make it more attractive to more people. They can't just sit there and sell it to people and say it's better than Microsoft's DNS service. You know, broader use cases, broader use cases. Yeah. Before we get to the Cisco Live news, we have a uh, we have a report from the Dell Oro Group talking about 2023 switch sales for quarter one. And uh, Greg, things are headed up and to the right, record setting. In <laughs> fact, according to the folks at Dell Oro, 20% growth, yeah. and uh, and everybody that's selling switches is getting a bump. Nvidia and Arista are uh, getting the biggest bumps, though. Arista three times faster than overall market growth, six points of revenue share. They are leading the pack for sure. Uh, Nvidia wasn't quite that strong, but still impressive. And the reason why, it sounds like uh, it's not people are ordering new switches, it's that uh, supply chain situation is improving. Quote, unquote, ongoing release of backlog. And who's buying all these switches? Cloud service providers, of course, at two thirds of the volume and large enterprise, pretty much the rest. And why, why are they buying these things? AI, Greg, of course, AI is driving the spend. So you got Google, Amazon, Meta, and Microsoft buying up all these switches by the pallet load. But then also the report suggests that tier two and three providers, as well as, uh, again, those large enterprises are buying for AI reasons as well. So what do you think of all that? I think the AI thing's a little overblown. There's no evidence that AI needs tens of thousands of switches. At, At this point, the AI infrastructure they're building out is fairly limited. It's a few hundred servers per AI cluster. And I don't think that the analysts here are reading the market entirely correctly. I'm certainly saying, not disagreeing that there are purchases being made, you know, of Broadcom's Jericho 3 chipset from Arista to get a lower latency switch that's much better suited to AI. But I would maintain, continue to maintain, but I'm still looking for more evidence to disprove what I said before, that really it's about having a DPU and a switch together. Now, the cloud providers, the big cloud companies, have their DPUs, you know, whether it's a, each different one has their own, AWS has its own DPU that it built, Google's got its own, Microsoft likes to use a a mix of different providers for its DPUs that it uses, and they can put those on the switch. But anybody else, I think they're going to be looking for a bundle of the switch and the DPU, because making all that software work and that application layer stuff work is actually incredibly difficult. So I think, yes, cloud providers are taking... Two-thirds of the revenue growth in the quarter is what I read, Hmm. while the large enterprise segment contributed the remaining share. So as you said, the release is that there's now components coming into the market. There's a massive backlog of switches. So the spike in in the sales is there, but I don't think it's fueled by artificial intelligence. I find that very difficult to believe. Well, if it is fueled by artificial intelligence, I think it's going to be a temporary driver of growth in that AI is all the hotness right now. And there's a bunch of AI startups that are trying to flood the market. But from all the different AI practitioners that we've talked to, people that are actually in the market, understand what the technology can do and what it's good for. It's going to be limited use cases, honestly. We're at, with large language models, we kind of are starting to figure out what they can do and what they can't do. And there's not game-changing technology here where all of a sudden technology that is going to drive massive growth in the technology sector for, you know, years to come. It's not, I don't think it's going to be the next big wave we ride. So maybe for the moment, there's going to be some new, bigger, fancier AI clusters built for driving large language model experimentation in the startup for various startups. But long term, I think we're in the hype cycle right now and we're going to hit the trough of disillusionment in the next year or two and growth is going to slow. So you sort of believe that it's um, all fart, no smell. Yeah. Hear it, but you can't <laughs> smell it sort of thing. <laughs> great analogy, Greg. That's great. Very classy. Yes, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that it's going to be very difficult to predict. 
because there is certainly companies out there who are going to produce models that are huge. So Open OpenAI was talking that Chat GPT four took something like like hundreds of millions of dollars to compute that uh, model for the LLM. But now what we've seen is that people can take much smaller models and they're actually processing them on local desktops to yeah. build the final chat model. You know, yeah, which is actually models. going to be needed, being able to do it at the edge or even on some level like on your phone mm. to uh, to accomplish certain mm. tasks that would be useful to the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, but ChatGPT5, as I recall, was going to be orders of magnitude larger to be able to do what they want to do with GPT-5. Yeah. So, I mean, there are drivers there but for these very large clusters. They're not, just, not going to do ChatGPT-5. It's the long-term thing that I'm dubious of. Yeah. I don't think AI is the next wave that's going to drive you know tons of revenue growth in the technology sector. I just don't see it. No, it's going to become uh, the latest fashion. You know, it's like you've got a jacket and you put it on. AI is going to be that. It's an accessory that goes on top of everything. And some people will use ChatGPT. You know, the huge model with the global reach and pay for access to its online API as a service type thing. But I suspect that for most specific use cases, like uh, let's say you're in a factory and you're applying AI to determine if this machine is running off true, you don't need ChatGPT for that. You just need a very tight model that's trained on, you know, data from three or four hundred machines and their vibration data to say this is out of true. Does that make sense? It doesn't yeah. need that $200 million worth of computation. Um, and you can probably do that on a desktop, you know, with a good DPU and a good uh, GPU. You don't really need much more than that. So. Well, let's move on to Cisco Live news. Uh, such as it was, Greg, I don't know that we got much news uh, that was all that exciting coming out mm. of the Cisco Live event. Of course, Cisco Live, the biggest networking event mm -hmm. of the industry, still uh, reports of about 20,000 attendees in Las Vegas this year, 2023. Uh, Cisco had their 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 headlines and you know their Halo press releases, and we're going to talk through them. But I'm afraid we're going to let the cat out of the bag here and just say, eh, you're going to be disappointed if you were looking for some big news of you know new products or new whatever. You're well, not. You're hey, not getting hang much. on, that's really harsh. They've decided on using the name Catalyst for all enterprise products. Right. That's so now Catalyst right. SD WAN. Catalyst switches in the campus, and I believe the Nexus switches in the data center will also be relabeled Catalyst as well. Big news, rebranded, big news. Boo -boo. Big news, yeah. Yeah, that's obviously a feature, not a bug, um, which I thought was very important. I think it's long overdue. The idea that people were still calling it Viptel or SD-WAN, you know, after all this time just doesn't make sense. What What is that team doing um, if they can't get around to coming up with a consistent um, naming strategy? I mean, obviously the SD-WAN was not, is the redheaded stepchild in that family. But, you know, come on. <laughs> you know, I think there is a recognition that inside of Cisco that the campus and the branch and the WAN are all one network. So they're no longer these little fiefdoms. And over there is the campus person doing the LAN. And then over there is the Wi-Fi person completely non- yeah. It has to be. It has to be to, to deliver on uh, things like a unified view of security where you're tracking uh, individuals and their identities across the network. You've got to look at all of that infrastructure as one thing because everybody works from home now. You don't have a choice if you want to deliver on that sort of a security model. It's just the way it is. Uh, so yeah, yeah, Cisco recognizing that means they've got to do some rethinking about how the BUs are aligned and so on. Uh, but they're also getting all the feedback and pushback from customers that, and Greg, this is where my, some of my frustration comes in here. We've heard mm. this pitch about simplification every year for years. I remember sitting in the keynote theater, this goes back several Cisco yeah. lives, and the pitch was basically, we hear you. It's hard out there. We're making it difficult to Cisco to do business with us. Licensing's tough. We understand. Um, we're going to simplify things. We promise it's going to get better. And then there'd be some initiative and some plan. And it kind of feels like we're going there again, where there was a big talk, Greg, about simplicity. Yeah. This was led by Jonathan Davidson after Chuck got on stage for the minimum possible amount of time. Man, that guy on stage is really hard to listen to. Anyway. Jonathan posted uh, up on his LinkedIn, and then he also has a blog post, and he's saying that they're talking about this unifying experience, and that he sees the whole networking experience is going to, get this, unleash innovation by unifying experiences. I just think I threw up a little bit. But anyway, he says, and I'm quoting from a video that he put together, this vision was born from the feedback we heard from countless customers. I'm very grateful to our customers who spoke candidly about their unique journeys. That's just stepping out of the quote here. 
That is a an admission and a half. <laughs> Customers who spoke candidly, in other words, they probably has been quite a few heated discussions saying that by you know that, that something about the relationship between Cisco and customers is a bit tense. Do you think? Well, and again, you know, this was wordsmith very carefully, and so right, yeah. it is quite an admission, even phrased as such. If customers are speaking candidly, that usually means yelling at the table. Uh, the other quote I took away was, every customer expressed a need for simple-to-use and predictable platforms with fewer interfaces and simplified licensing. And then he went on to say, every customer echoed each other with the need to prioritize solutions, not products. Do you know what, Ethan? I think that's exactly the opinion that I've been expressing here on Network Break for three to five years, maybe longer, is that Cisco exists in these little silos, mm. and each silo is a little fiefdom. And they have deep financial incentives. Like you're talking about executives at the top of that silo who's earning sort of something like one to five million dollars a year in salary. And if they don't hit their number, they lose out big time. This is a structural thing, Greg, that goes back to the John Chambers days where we knew from talking yeah. to lots of different folks that work at Cisco that the BUs were incentivized to compete against each other. That was part of it. Not work together so much, but compete against each other. Now, when Chuck came in, supposedly that was going to change. And remember when Chuck first came on board, one of the big announcements was, we are going to unify the iOS families. How, how's that yeah. gone? It hasn't gone at all. Uh, and from everything we can tell, the incentives, as you were just saying, remain. There's still competition internally, it feels like. So Jonathan Davidson, who is the speaker here, is the senior vice president of the Enterprise Business Unit. And all of the enterprise products have been put under him. And he's been in that position for a number of years now. I think it's three years, if I remember rightly. And to admit three years in that you're now going to innovate by simplifying and uh, simplifying license and having simple to use products to sell and predictable platforms is a real admission that the last three years hasn't happened. Like, I don't get that. That's how I read it. Am I being too harsh? I don't think you're being too harsh. I mean, I, I dug into several of the blog posts that were built around uh, Jonathan's annou announcement. There were links in the bottom to go off to other places. I started reading through them, tried to understand the substance of this vision, the Cisco, Cisco networking cloud, they're calling it. Um, there was a screenshot of what the Cisco Networking Cloud tool is, if I understood it right. And, and, and if you that were at Cisco Live saw some demos of some things and want to correct us, please uh, hit the follow up at uh, packetpushers.net slash FU. But the screenshot that I saw, all that the tool was at this point was a gateway into all the other Cisco tools you already have. So there was a screenshot yeah. there that showed you that you could jump into your Meraki stuff and then into your Spaces stuff and then to your Thousand Eyes stuff and the Intersight. There was SSO there, so you get some single sign-on. There's some kind of APA integration so that you're dealing with, it was it a single pane of glass, I guess, maybe? That was, More is that a stained, simplification? A stained glass window. More of a stained glass, glass window, window right? <laughs> is that yeah. simplification or is that just another thing that you got to interact with and presumably pay for that you got to buy? I mean, that's not what I'm looking for when I think of simplification. So as I understand it, Cisco is talking about going to implement this over the next three to five years. So what Cisco is doing, I call the fat lady on the bus, right? And when you get on the bus and the fat lady sits next, sits down and takes up one and a half seats, nobody else can enter the market. And I think what Cisco is saying here is we're going to produce a networking cloud. All of our products are going to be one. And this is something that we've seen. You look at Palo Alto, you look at Fortinet, you look at what Aruba is doing by producing its Aruba Connect, which is its overarching orchestration engine that manages all of its product. HPE has the same thing even above that for its uh, GreenLake and Emerald products, where you can just have one interface and everything becomes native in that thing. And Cisco saying, after everybody else has done it, we're just about to get started. We plan to implement this, as I understand it, over the next three to five years. So one way that you can look at this is, please don't leave us. We know we suck at this, but we can change. We can do better. Just give me another chance to fix my licensing programs. <laughs> please. You you nailed you it with the three to five years in that um, mm -hmm. one of the words that showed up in the blog post a lot was vision. It's a vision. We're, we're Meaning nothing exists yet, but we kind of think we know where we want to go. We have a plan. And, uh, and and like you said, trust us. We're, it's going to be good. Just hang, on, hang with there. Hang, hang with us. We're going to be... We're going to do it together. We're going to we're going to do it together. <laughs> so I wish them the best. Um, Cisco hasn't had a good history of making good software. Um, its best software products are, of course, ones where they bought them by acquisition. Duo, uh, Jasper, Jasper for its IoT platform, Thousand Eyes for its uh, 
uh, monitoring and visibility tooling. Um, Thousand Eyes is a huge part of this, actually, by the way. Um, and one of the things mm -hmm, that they mm -hmm. led with and said, like, a key part of this is our visibility into all of this. And, and they're also, uh, one other thing I noticed is then talking about Meraki starting to manage uh, campus stuff. I'm not sure what to think about that. I don't, I think the up until now, having Meraki separate from Cisco was a very powerful and something I didn't understand. And I've had to recant and admit that I was wrong about now that they're saying, okay, Meraki is going to come in and start managing my campus and my branches and maybe even my SD-WAN is something that I saw. Now, don't, I can't find where I saw that, but if that's what they're planning on doing, if they're saying, well, Meraki is going to become the unified networking, cloud networking thing, then I'm not sure. The power of Meraki has been that it said, no, we don't do all of the things. We just do this, mm. a very tight, narrow subset of things. So I think it's going to be messy. I, I well, would... I, when I, you I say you wish Cisco the best, Greg, I'm actually, I'm genuinely, you know, right there with you in that I grew up with Cisco. I built my, much of my networking career on Cisco. Both of us were CCIEs back in the day. And uh, to see Cisco, to feel like this, you know, disarrayed battleship still sailing through the seas, but sort of falling apart. It's, uh, it, it sucks, man. Cisco used to be, yeah. back in the day, I'd like buy a Cisco product it was the best thing there was. And then two or three years later, I'd have a refresh cycle and I didn't even look anywhere else because the next thing Cisco made was friggin' awesome and I had to have it. It was better and I couldn't wait to buy it exactly. and put it in my network. It was going to be amazing. And if I had any problems, I was going to go attack and they were going to fix it for me. And that is not the Cisco of, of 2023 or even the last 10 years, no. I don't think. The number of people who say to us... Uh, I am not going back to Cisco because the licensing is just so difficult to work with. I don't, mm. you know, people have basically got full-time staff just handling Cisco licensing. That's not cost-effective. That's not value-added, right? That's not saving money or operational efficiency. That's just straight-out waste. And that's, we see the same on cloud, by the way. So people who are, you know, operating on off-prem cloud often have teams of people monitoring the costs, which is an overhead and part of the failure of it. But I think challenge here is that Cisco looks a lot like Intel. It's a company that's struggling to make the next jump. It's yeah. got itself stuck in a bit of a run. I, I think one of the biggest underlying problems is that Chuck Robbins isn't full-time at Cisco. He's on the, He sits on the board at BlackRock, which is one of the largest investment companies in the world today. And I think that, you know, if I had to say what's Chuck Robbins' main goal in life, I would say sitting on the board at BlackRock and what's Cisco to him? Well, you know, that's how I got on the board of BlackRock. So... It's um, not obvious to me that It may also be a, a revelation about where his incentives are aligned. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, thinking more right. about it from a shareholder financial Wall Street perspective as opposed to customer experience and all that. Well, there were a couple of more announcements. There were several mm. more announcements that came out of Cisco. Um, Multi-Cloud Defense Zero Trust, we're going to mention that in passing, not spend a lot of time there today. Um, there's, again, the uh, the part of the, the vision had a bunch of sub-announcements, one of which was around how to build a data center using Cisco Gear, a blueprint to build an AI-ready uh, data center, uh, for example, something that's mm -hmm. coming soon. Um, there's a new firewall that I caught along the way that they announced. Uh, I mean, hey, hardware is cool. Who doesn't like new hardware? Um, <laughs> And, yeah. you know, and a bunch of other little things, but uh, but nothing nothing earth shattering uh, beyond the, the big simplification vision. I, uh, I'll call out one, the multi-cloud defense. They announced a multi-cloud defense, zero trust, multi-cloud and integrated security. Uh, and weirdly, Tom Gillis is heading up this unit. Uh, we know Tom Gillis when he was back at VMware. Mm -hmm. And it, I was watching the video and he was talking about this. And I was literally thinking that he was talking about VMware's NSX from about five years ago. Because that's exactly what he's talking about, is this idea that you've got to have your you know, security at the edge and it all has to run in software and whatever. But basically what it appears he's saying is we're going to bring the Cisco security portfolio and start to unify it together. So none of this Cisco umbrella over here and you know Fire DNS firewalls over here. Over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's going to become like an SSE play. I mean, customers are turning away from Cisco at a great rate of knots. And if you just want that functionality, you go to Zscaler or Cloudflare or one of those. And you've got a much lower uh, friction surface than you have dealing with Cisco, much better tech support and much better product, much more reliable compared to Cisco from what I've heard, from everything I've read and, and from people I've spoken to. So, you know, the, the quote was, Cisco launches new security service edge, SSE, which we're talking about here for five years solution to enable superior hybrid work experiences, dramatically simplify access across any location, any device, any application. Uh, we've been talking about that for five years, maybe eight years, as part of the extension of SD-WAN as SSE. 
And Cisco's finally announcing it in 2023, 14 years after SD-WAN came, and certainly a good 80 years after SSE became the obvious endpoint. It feels late, so and in Cisco terms, that's an innovation. Well, one of our sponsors is uh, Itential, and if you're at Cisco Live and you went to the Itential booth, many of you that did that told them that you heard about them on the Packet Pushers podcast network. We really appreciate that. Uh, and Itential is a message for you on today's network break. Today's networks span physical, virtual, and multi-cloud infrastructure. Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks more manageable. Tools like Ansible, Terraform, Python can help you handle routine tasks, but they're limited. The automations you can build with them only focus on specific network tasks rather than the full change management process. With Itential, you can use the assets you've already built and integrate them into larger, more comprehensive automation workflows. Itential provides local code capabilities so you can easily build and run workflows that automate the entire network change process from ticket creation to ticket closure. With Itential, you can incorporate existing CLI and custom scripts into automation workflows or build your own automations. Maximize automation from ticket creation to ticket closure by integrating automations with your entire IT ecosystem. Create guardrails to prevent errors with robust pre- and post-check processes. Make your automations accessible for self-service access that anyone can execute inside or outside of the platform. Know your network. Automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. That is itential.com slash packetpushers. A couple more stories to close things out today, Greg. Uh, one is uh, a story I picked up from Future IOM. That's uh, I believe that's uh, Scott Rainovich's uh, site. HashiCorp gets reality checked. Uh, and uh, Scott has some notes here that HashiCorp stock is down 26% on Thursday, June 8th, 2023 here. This is on news of an 8% staff layoff and reports of, quote, rapidly slowing growth. Hashi shares have lost 75% of their value since the company's initial public offering in late 2021. The article points out, and uh, part of the reason, macro challenges, that is the current economic environment, and then, quote, ongoing pressure on customer budgets. Uh, and and uh, kind of the summary here, everyone loves Terraform and Vault, those two HashiCorp products, but uh, but not the other stuff that they make nearly as much. And they do make a lot of products that all work together and do have fans, yeah. but just never took over the market like Terraform and Vault did. Starting to sound a bit like Docker. Docker had this great core idea and then tried to build an enterprise tool set around it, but couldn't do it. They got there in the end, like Docker today is reasonably viable and got a great tool set for orchestrating containers but got there too late because the market was expecting them to, you know, blow up and, and get enormously big. And as you say, the share prices have lost 75% of their value since the company's initial public offering where they really got a lot of money. So in theory, they should have a lot of money in the bank to be able to keep running. They shouldn't need a good share price to go out and request more funds, but it's a long-term decline. Like the HashiCorp share price has been declining over a very, very long period of time. Which, Greg, um, it doesn't mean that their revenue was off. They actually exceeded targets. They did well. Yes, it's just right. yep. some of the other comments made by the C-suite on the call suggested, mm-hmm. eh, we don't know about the future. Not looking so good. We're not yeah. We're not confident. I think the reading I'm seeing from the analyst reports is that HashiCorp started to cut costs back in December 2022. And the idea was that that would start to improve profitability, but it's also an admission that they can't grow their way out of this. There's no more growth you're not suddenly going to go from you know 140 million a quarter to 200 million a quarter by the year end or something like that. It's going to be this progressive slow, and so that changes the valuation of the company. Then the other side of this too is that, like a lot of uh, IT companies now, they all depend on the subscription revenue, and we've had this real struggle over the last six to twelve months as the industry's looked at this inflation and everybody's predicting that there's going to be failures and the the economy's going to collapse and blah 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 blah. And if you're on a subscription license, your customers can go, you know, I need to make cutbacks and they cut back. And that goes immediately to the bottom line of the IT vendors. And so you, I think you're going to see a lot more of this up-down spikiness. Like Cisco, you don't see it. Uh, Cisco's not a, a great set of mechanisms to flatten out its numbers. It never, it never ever goes under. I think the day that Cisco misses its numbers will be the day that the share price just unravels perhaps. But it's got a number of mechanisms inside of it that's large enough to be able to move the results around to make sure it hits its goals. But when you're a smaller company like HashiCorp, your valuation is determined by how much you can sell. So, as you said, they had a predicted that in Q2 they're going to do between 137 and 139 million, and they're going to run a non-gap operating loss at 46 to 43 million. So they are selling 140 million 
and losing $45 million on that. So they're losing 30% of what they make. That doesn't include the, you know, none of the capital. There's no return to shareholders. And for 2024, they're saying the total revenue they'll make is $570 million, but their operating loss will be $100 million. So they're, that's not a profitable company in that sense, right? No, and it's, it's, it's not that, that, right, it's not just that they're growing, but they're also losing money. And if they're saying that runway for growth is, is, is kind of over, they don't know how they're going to do much more growth, then, well, what do you do? You know, as a shareholder and investor, yeah. you're looking to get your returns. And it's like, wait a minute, you guys, have, you're a big company, but you've grown as big as you can grow and you're still hemorrhaging all that cash. You know, I don't know where HashiCorp, I mean, right, they're starting to lay off staff and trying to figure out how to cut some expenses, but that is a big operating loss to overcome. Yep. Well, the same thing happened to Nutanix this week. I didn't put it in the show notes because it wasn't all that relevant. One of the things that you look at this, uh, the market capitalization is down now to $5 billion. I think that this starts to make um, HashiCorp vulnerable to a takeover. There will be somebody out there who's looking at, because this is a key piece of the off-prem cloud, that whole Terraform capability, that language that it's got is actually a, a key trigger point around the off-prem clouds, particularly AWS. If you could get control of that, that might be advantageous to you. But the question is, who would buy it? It's too big for most companies to buy at a $5 billion market. If you want to buy it, you're probably going to have to come in at a 20 or 30% you know, premium. So you're talking $6, 7000000000 billion to, make, to buy that. You know, Cisco could buy it. Wow. Scott points out in the piece, Cisco, yeah, he, he suggested Cisco. They've been rumored a long time, apparently, to be interested in HashiCorp, and maybe they pick them up at a discount now. Cisco doesn't do public buyouts. Because they have to go and lodge a prospectus and say, we want to buy you out. Cisco likes to do what I call a seagull, where they come in on Thursday afternoon, they slap a bit on the table, and they tell the owners of the company that you've got until Monday night morning at 9am to accept it or the deal's done off the table. And that's what they normally do with these startups, that they can that they buy quite cheaply. They seagull in and, you know... Steal a chip and then poop on the way out, sort of <laughs> poop on the on the company on the way out, sort of thing. Um, I don't. It's not to say Cisco couldn't. Cisco could, but you know Dell could to get into this. HPE's not big enough. Um, Dell's made a number of acquisitions like this. I don't think companies like Red Hat um, or Blue Hat, as people often call it now, IBM, you know the IBM Red Hat um, unholy alliance. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I, I just not too sure what happens to Terraform and HashiCorp. They're burning loads of cash. The product's not getting take up as fast as they thought it would. They're probably fine in the long run, but then in this market, you don't have a long run. A couple more quick stories before we close out Network Break and hand you off to the Tech Byte for today. Uh, Itential goes more into low code. They announced this at Cisco Live. So yes, our sponsor, Itential, also had announcements. The Intential automation platform 23.1 has been released, enhanced API compliance capabilities, uh, reimagined automation workflow building experience. Basically, they they, they changed the, um, the the fabric piece that they use uh, to from the say, ground they up, the GUI. rebuilt it, changed yeah, the GUI, okay. yeah, improved it. And, and give you more features of functionality. I mean, the big takeaway there is less about the features in my mind and more about these guys are rapidly iterating on this platform. They have been very responsive to, uh, to customers yep. and making it more and more useful. All right, one more headline, quantum space networking, Greg. This is your story. What's this all about? <laughs> well, we've always got to have some space networking if we can find a good story. This one is um, about quantum space networking. There's a company called SES um, and they're leading a consortium of 20 European companies with the European Space Agency and the European Commission support. They will design, develop, and launch a satellite-based end-to-end system for secure quantum key distribution, enabling in-orbit validation and demonstration of next-generation cybersecurity across Europe. So the idea here is we've talked about uh, quantum key distribution in a show three or four years ago now with... Uh, yeah, Dr. Joshua Slater, yeah, yeah. And it was super interesting to understand they're basically using entanglement as a secure way to distribute keys so you can update security keys on demand instead of via, you know, shipping keys around in a in some sort of arcane process where you, you know, have a key signing ceremony or I whatever. I don't think it was actually um, entanglement and, if I remember right. But but anyway, yeah, yeah, go no, ahead. yeah. Mm, okay. And so this is basically <laughs> taking that technology and saying we can build a satellite-based network for distributing keys. And um, it's a piece of space networking that we haven't heard. Mostly we talk about SpaceX and all of the other companies providing bandwidth in space. And we talk about IoT in space with, you know, low, low RA, low WAN type and, you know, direct to the node type of things. 
or, you know, Apple, Apple iPhone with its space messaging. But this is just a much more simple, much more narrow use case. And when we started off talking about SpaceX flying satellites so long ago, the thing that I was saying is once you get the price of a launch down to a certain point, then all of a sudden these niche use cases start to become viable. Whereas before, getting a satellite into orbit was a, you know, four or $500 million exercise. Whereas now you can get a ride share on a satellite from the European Space Agency or one of the US um, launch people for just a few million dollars. Changes the industry. Yeah, sounds cool. And uh, I'm, yeah. quantum key distribution is the big application right now in the networking space. I'm, I'm here for it. It's interesting. Yeah. If you think about NATO and what's happening in Ukraine with Russia, if you had a way to rapidly and safely redistribute keys, you could keep whistling your cryptography, rolling over your crypto and make it much more secure than it could be if you could do that securely. And I think this is a step in that direction. Yeah. Well, that wraps up the news for this week. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're talking about SD-WAN connectivity and uh, the features that are in the product today. That's coming right up. SD-WAN provides new options for connecting branch locations to your headquarters, to SaaS and cloud applications, but SD-WAN is about more than just connectivity. By using multiple links simultaneously, SD-WAN lets you prioritize applications and services based on network performance, and because SD-WAN gateways are continuously measuring network performance, they can switch high-priority apps to the most performant link in real time. On today's sponsored TechBytes podcast, we talk with Palo Alto Networks about how SD-WAN delivers flexible connections and application performance for your branch and remote locations. Our guest is Rajesh Kari, Product Marketing Manager at Palo Alto networks. Uh, Rajesh, welcome back to the show. So as I mentioned, one of SD-WAN's key benefits is those multiple WAN connections. Why is this flexibility so important and does it introduce more complexity in routing and, and managing that underlay? Great to be here. So all SD-WAN solutions seem to provide multiple connections, you know, whether it is on broadband or internet or even MPLS. But what is really required is that all these connections should be used in an active, active manner. Mm -hmm. The active passive is long gone, right? Something right. goes wrong and you switch to another path. Now, there are much more bandwidth requirements in terms of applications, users. So what is really required is all these connections in a carrier independent way are able to understand the applications, steer them based on the bandwidth requirements and also the performance requirements. Yeah. So you said something really important there, which is, you know, understanding the application. And that's, I think, something that people should really understand about SD-WAN is that we're not just talking about, you know, port and protocol and making some kind of policy decision. We're talking about knowing this is not just a web application. This is a Microsoft application. And it's not just a Microsoft applica application. It's in Office 365 and maybe it's a voice call. So you want to have different parameters based on, you know, that fine grained application identification, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just knowing the application signature based on the networking protocols no longer works because as we are right now on a Zoom call, it's more of the SaaS and UCAS and cloud apps, which comes its mm. own signature, which also dynamically changes, right? And they come with a lot of sub-applications under a single umbrella of app. So what is required, as you pointed out, is the accurate identification of what the app is, at the same time, what the underlying applications as well are, so that they are all related to the parent app. They are given the same kind of treatment in kind of in terms of mm. prioritization and also traffic engineering. And that becomes the core of any SD-WAN solution that promises the app performance. So one of the things that I've seen a lot of people do is they have a primary link, which is probably over a broadband or maybe direct internet access, and then they have a 5G. But what you don't want to be doing is sending your traffic over 5G unless it's necessary. So maybe what they do is have the DIA and then have a broadband connection, and you want to do steering of traffic over those connections, which one's faster. A lot of people actually find the broadband's faster. But what you also want to do is say maybe under failure conditions, you want the CAD registers to work over 5G or something like that. Is that the sort of thing that we're talking about? Like really granular policies for traffic under various conditions? It's more than that. So we are not just talking about, hey, how to use your meter links and broadband links. We're talking about how we can leverage those app SLAs, right? When I talk about app SLAs, it needs to be application level performance, whether it is the transaction time, how the application server is actually responding, the most important thing is it has to be available for all apps because most of the time, as you pointed out, DIA, 
you just send the traffic and forget about it, right? Mm. Whether it is metered or broadband. Mm. How is the app performing on those links? That has to be the determining factor in order to do any traffic engineering or prioritization. What we do is we can measure the application performance by leveraging the traffic itself. So you don't need a head end. You don't need a bookended solution. So we are both single-sided as well as dual-sided. If there is a data center, we can measure based on network SLAs and app SLAs. And if it's an open-ended like a cloud, SaaS, or DIA, then we can also use that application traffic to understand what these different parameters are. Based on Mm. that, we will know a metered link might still work for some applications, right? Within boundaries, of course. So... A broadband might not be the best solution for certain SaaS applications. So that is what is required because at the end of the day, let's face it, user experience is key for everyone. So what kind of uh, measurements are you taking uh, via SD-WAN to to measure the network performance? Prisma SD-WAN always takes into consideration the network SLAs, whether it is jitter, packet loss, or, you know, latency. But then the, but those SLAs are what you derive. Like you monitor flow states and you can say, oh, look, Zoom's working well, but Microsoft on this connection isn't. Maybe I should shift it to another one. That's that's thrust here, right? Yeah, that is that becomes the decision-making process, right? But to take the decision, you need to have the intelligence. So what we do is by looking into the application traffic, we know exactly what the transaction time for, say, Microsoft Office 365 uh, on a certain link or destined to a certain server. If that is not performing, if the application server itself is not responding in time, it is causing the significant delays or latency, then we, we can reroute it on a better performing link to a better serving server anywhere in the cloud. So I think, you know, some, I think, network engineering folks, when they hear about SD-WAN, they're like, you know what, I've got QoS settings, I've got policy-based routing, I've got a load balancer, I can run a trace route myself. What's SD-WAN doing differently that I can't just do on my own? All the tedious operations that network engineer, I was a network engineer, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we used to do uh, on those days is now automated. It's all under the hood. So Mm -hmm. whether it is application policies based on these SLAs, or even the prioritization. Everything takes into the consideration the app signature. Because we take the app signature and we accurately identify these things automatically fall into place. Now, whether it is failover or it's load balancing or prioritization based on a critical app, it's all done automatically. The network admin, right out of the box, they have the user experience for all their critical applications. So we used to talk about fingerprinting of apps, which then Palo Alto came up with App ID. But then we're also talking about fingerprinting of apps is now actually done with machine learning and probably moving into AI. You can actually identify apps even as they morph over time. So if Zoom you know, moves from using TLS to using Quick, TLS over Quick as opposed to TLS over TCP, that means that you're still able to track these things even as they evolve. They're almost in real time. That is true. Because we have the app ID extended from Prisma Access, right? We are always had the intelligence of even dynamically changing application. As you mentioned, one of the apps could uh, go from non-encrypted to suddenly an encrypted behavior. So we have these app IDs, which is constantly being monitored, generated, tracked with Prisma Access and now coming to SD-WAN. So for the overall SASE, you have the same app ID constructs. So at any point of time, your detection is always accurate and your treatment of the traffic is always according to the business policies. So if I'm going with like a lease line and MPLS connection, or maybe even two of them or matching, you know, mixing and matching MPLS and broadband, and I get an SLA from my MPLS provider, shouldn't that be good enough? Aren't you just, you know, sort of shoving more into the pipe by doing all these measurements? The SLAs that's provided by MPLS used to work, but the reality is more and more businesses are either moving towards broadband or they are having broadband where they augment MPLS with, right? Mm -hmm. So the real challenge comes with these Mm. uh, publicly available internet connections where there is no control on SLAs. 
Now, how do you make it work for those links? At the same time, leverage your MPLS for whatever purpose, right? Active-active or active-passive. So it complements to the existing SLAs. And I guess that also comes down to that transition away from dedicated bandwidth from your telco to having just whatever bandwidth is available, whether it's 5G over, you know, direct internet over 5G, direct internet over broadband or direct internet over an MPLS tail, we're actually finding that all of them work. And generally, people don't choose the direct internet over, you know, some sort of fixed circuit because it takes too long. By the time it's deployed, you're already finished, you know, like the the broadband works fine. The secret here is knowing that it's not working fine. This is where SD-WAN revolutionized this bandwidth by saying, I can monitor that bandwidth and adapt. If my broadband connection is not enough, I can tell you that something's not right. Yes, absolutely. You can always tell how much bandwidth is available because we are also monitoring the capacity. With that visibility, you know which is the best performing or more available link. And on top of it, we add this app SLAs, which tell you where the applications will perform better. I mean, sometimes Mm -hmm. the bandwidth might be better, right? But the application SLAs might be degraded because the app server through that particular link is not as Mm -hmm. great as expected. So by taking into all these considerations, we provide the resiliency. Not just that, you know, this also brings us to a good conversation into high availability. Most of these uh, businesses, they just don't have these multiple band carriers connected to the branch, but they also want that device level, you know, edge level resiliency. What we do with Prisma SD-WAN is we provide that high availability with two Prisma SD-WAN ION devices, but what we do differently is in case one of the device fails, we still preserve that 100% of capacity. You might ask me how, right? So this is this idea that you, let's say you've got 200 meg links, but one is you don't want to give them 200 meg and then it degrade to 100 meg. You want to say, I'd want them to have a consistent performance, but I want a load balance. So maybe I'm using 40% on this one, 60% on this one, but never more than 100%. So if one of them gets lost, I'm still inside. I'm still presenting the same SLA. Is that right? So what we do is, Mm. if you look at the device connections, so one of the devices can get a broadband drop. The other device can could uh, get a 5G or an MPLS drop. So imagine in a typical situation, if one of the device fails, which means that you also lose that band connection, right? Mm -hmm. The broadband, which was still offering that one gig or 500 Mbps or whatever it is, now that's gone, right? You're just left with a meter link or an MPLS link with hardly 100 Mbps. So what we do, we always add this fail-to-wire capability. So the failed device can still forward traffic through that band carrier. So the business policies will still look into where the traffic is supposed to be routed. Now it will understand that, yes, this is supposed to go only on the broadband. Though the device has failed, we can still keep forwarding. So now you have that broadband or MPLS or 5G, all the connections running at the same capacity, even under a device failure situation. So you're saying that the, if I've got, I'm running essentially two SD-WAN gateways in an active-active configuration and one fails, it, can, it essentially fails open so I can still pass traffic through it? Absolutely. That's okay. right. And it's just sort of running with whatever the last policies it got were. Yeah, that's right. I think something else I wanted to, that, that came to mind when we were talking about, you know, MPLS and SLAs, MPLS, uh, SLAs are essentially a promise and promises can be broken. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, at the end of the month that your provider will give you some credits or a nice apology letter or whatever. But in the meantime, that end user or end users had a bad experience if the SLA wasn't met. And the thing about SD-WAN is if that I'm seeing bad performance on one link, I can automatically switch traffic to a better link to make sure I'm preserving that performance uh, in the case of an SLA not being met, right? That is right. So one thing to remember here is it's just not the SLAs. It's just not the active-active solution. We also have all this visibility with ADEM, with the SD-WAN analytics. So we can exactly provide the end-to-end observability of what is happening, right? In terms of, hey, was there a degradation in terms of bandwidth? Is there a degradation of SLAs? But not just that, we can also do it in a very predictive and proactive manner. Assume that one of the branch sites are constantly running low on bandwidth or there is a higher demand on bandwidth due to the applications or the number of users who show up to the branch. So what we do is we provide that visibility saying that X number of branches or this particular branch 
is really struggling for bandwidth, it's time to upgrade. If you want to upgrade, what will be the best solution? We even provide guided recommendation for that. Same applies for SLAs as well. If a certain application continuously degrades for a user or a branch on a particular circuit, we provide the visibility. We provide recommendations on what needs to do, right? We will tell you this business policy is really not working for you. How about you go and redesign this business policy? So it's not just the automation under the hood, but also the proactive alerts and notifications that allows any IT administrator to go and take the measures way ahead before there is an outage or there is a lot of connectivity. And I can see that being particularly useful as, you know, uh, organizations seem like there's an effort to get folks back into the office at least some part of the day. So that means bandwidth usage could fluctuate throughout the week. And if you're not keeping an eye on it, uh, the days when more folks are in the office than not, they're going to have a bad performance uh, experience unless, you know, and, but you can get ahead of that by saying, you know, we're noticing bandwidth spikes on these days. Maybe you want to think about uh, upgrading that link. Yeah, uh, that's right. So with the hybrid work, as a norm now nowadays. So IT admins really have the challenge of determining how many folks are going to be at the office, what are the resource utilization, how much bandwidth is required. But with Prisma SD WAN, you can get visibility into what is happening at the branch, right? You have this flexible connectivity, you have this app SLAs, and you also have end-to-end -end observability. Now, IT admins also need much more than this. They have one bandwidth pool. Now, with our flexible on-demand model, which is a licensing model we launched last year, what they can do is they can go and allocate the bandwidth requirements based on the volume or number of people who turn up in a branch office. It's really interesting, that flexible licensing, because you might have a situation where people are coming back to the office, but they're not coming back to the office. And then all of a sudden they stop coming into the office for three months, but then a new project kicks off. So people are coming back to the office. Why would you want to buy, you know, a gigabit of license and then suddenly find it's only used at one, you know, 200 megabits per second. Now you want to say, oh, okay, well, I want to be able to move them around. That's a real feature compared to other vendors. They don't, they don't want to be flexible like this and, and sell less of anything. Yeah. That's really a differentiation for Prisma SD-WAN because now the allocation from a centralized pool doesn't just get automated. It also ends up the right way of allocation, right? As yeah. you said, yeah. you know, one branch doesn't see any traffic for months. So there's no point in putting a one gig and then just locking it up there. Uh, yeah. Instead, that one gig can be utilized for an HQ or a distribution center where there is really Or you can have a pop-up. So you might yeah. want to pop up a store or you want to go to a festival and put a, a booth at a festival and you want to give it and you've got you know, or the idea of flexible working doesn't just mean people being flexible. It also means you might want to have a pop-up branch. I've heard of uh, banking uh, institutions having pop-up banks mm -hmm. inside of malls and they pop in. They think this is going to be a good location for them. So they set up a branch on a trial basis. They don't negotiate an entire lease. They, you know, come up with an arrangement for four weeks, 12 weeks or something, pop in the Palo Alto SD-WAN, lets them get going to put their stuff together. And if there's enough footfall traffic and they generate enough new business, then they set up a store. That's something you couldn't do before, not easily anyway. Yeah, that's exactly what mm. we are talking about in the branch of the future. You know, mm. every single branch has evolved and the last two years has just accelerated that. The way businesses are conducted have drastically changed. I mean, the way I shop has changed, the way I order food has transformed, uh, and the way I bank, again, as you stated, right? There are just these pop-up branches, you know? Yeah. Um, Remember the old days when pizza was the only thing that got delivered after midnight? Right. It's pretty weird, isn't it? Yeah, right. right? You'd be working late and the only thing you could get was pizza. Was like, right. Those days so, are gone. So, much so every single branch has evolved regardless of the vertical. So this is what we call the branch of the future. And we have what it takes to deliver this branch of the future. No matter which vertical you are, what requirements you have, what kind of uh, users and applications that's in play. So we have what it takes to deliver that branch of the future. Okay, well, that does uh, bring us to the end of our time. Uh, Rajesh, thanks for being here, and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. If folks want to get more information on, on SD-WAN, on SASE, on Prisma SD-WAN, everything that uh, Palo Alto Networks is doing, where should they go? 
recently we did a big event um, where we really talk about the branch of the future, how Prisma SD-WAN delivers on this flexibility and also the application performance that's really required for today's branches. Uh, please check out sdxcentral.com to learn more about this event and you can watch it on demand right now. All right, you can get that on-demand event at sdxcentral.com. We'll also have the link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Again, Rajesh, good to speak with you. Thanks for being here. And thank you for being a listener. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us online at Twitter. We're at packetpushers. You can find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.